So it's, uh, <clears throat> it was um, recorded or said, or the story goes, that uh, after the Buddha's awakening, after his uh, nights where he sat under the Bodhi tree and he awakened to the Dhamma and uh, was liberated, enlightened, <laughs> whatever that big word means. <laughs> it said that he had a number of different insights that uh, enabled insight into interdependence, insight into the liberated heart. Um, and it was so blissful that for, for about six weeks he just sat in bliss and was absorbed in the pleasure and the joy and the freedom that he was experiencing. Um, and it even says in the story a very nice piece where he spent a whole week just gazing at the tree under which he had sat with eyes unblinking gazing in devotion at the Bodhi tree, which, which I always find a very beautiful sense of this appreciation for Mother Nature that had uh, sheltered him and had also, on the cusp of his enlightenment, when Mara came and said, who do you think you are to be enlightened? Who, who are you? So the ultimate doubt. You know, uh, he called the Mother Earth touched the earth, so you see that posture sometimes in the Buddha Rupa, in the Buddha statue where he's, he's touching the earth and calling the earth itself to witness the earth has known his many births many deaths and uh, experienced his journey, witnessed his journey so he called the spirit of the earth to come and witness and bless and bear bear uh, you know, um, rec- recognize, recognition. So this is a beautiful archetype, the, the sort of the blessing of the great earth that enables uh, his awakening. And then he sat in bliss and also in, a, in another kind of a cusp moment because he moved through this phenomenal experience or um, c- came back deeply rooted into his own nature and felt this great reluctance as the story goes to to speak about it didn't know how to speak about this insight Um, and in fact felt it was so subtle and so difficult to communicate he felt rather to to just maybe leave the world behind and I guess in the tradition of that time to go to the Himalayas and do what sadhus and yogis had done for eons before just to go and practice in a cave or in a hut somewhere and one can see the temptation (laughs) of that when one practices the feeling of oh you know it's just too difficult to even try and articulate you know people ask you even going on retreat what are you doing and you say, well, I'm going on a month retreat. And you say, well, that's nice. And then change the subject and talk about something else. I mean, it's really, really very hard to ex- explain what are you doing for a month, just sitting on a cushion and watching your breath. It just sounds absurd. Um, so I guess there's something we can taste, something of the dilemma that the Buddha also felt. 
Um, and it's said at that moment of great reluctance, the great god Brahma Sahampati came down from the Brahma realm and put his hands together and knelt before the Buddha and said, please, there are those that have a little dust in their eye and for the want of not of hearing the Dhamma, they, they would not be liberated. So please, out of compassion for those folks, please turn the wheel of the Dhamma um, for those that will understand. And uh, the, the Brahma Sahampati symbolizes, usually is understood to symbolize the movement of compassion that the Buddha felt. But also the Brahma realm is the realm of creation, the realm of form creation of forms and in a way the Buddha's journey wasn't totally complete, his enlightenment awakening was complete but until he had found a way to articulate and to bring it back into form uh, it wasn't, the, the circle wasn't complete and in some ways this is a journey that each of us takes too, we have our moments of insight or awakening and then there's some kind of imperative almost, I don't know quite exactly where it comes from to to live it, maybe not just speak it, but also to find a way to, to live it and express it. And that feeding back into integrating the awakening. So the journey, of course, you know, it was great that the Buddha did actually open his mouth and say something because we're still the beneficiary of that. And he sp in fact, he spent, um, I think, 40 odd years doing so. Um, established a, quite a systematic approach to his teaching eventually. But um, <clears throat> what, what is interesting is that his first teaching when he was sitting there in a state of bliss and was radiant, peaceful, very, very, very peaceful, someone came up to him and said, well, you know, what are you about? Who are you? And the Buddha said, well, I'm the all-awakened one. There's, there's, and the person said, who's your teacher? He said, I have no teacher, I'm self-awakened, I'm, the, you know, I'm the, uh, the world transcender, I'm the Buddha. And the, or something to that effect, I haven't got the exact, no one knows exactly what was said, so <laughs> I have some poetic license here. So the man said, oh, well, that's nice for you, and walked on his way. He didn't, couldn't really get it, you know, it's like, well, that's great that, you know, you're so enlightened, and he went on his way, and so it's said that after this expression, this lion's roar of his true nature, it wasn't an ego statement, it was a lion's roar of, of his inside, I'm awakened. Um, there is this awakening. Uh, that He realized that it wasn't a teaching that people could actually grasp or really understand. It wasn't, there wasn't an inroad for them, they could believe it and say, well, that's great for you, or they could disbelieve it and walk away. So by the time he actually walked from, from Budgaya, the place of his awakening, to Varanasi, which I guess took him several months, it's a long way, it's an overnight train journey if you did it by train, he'd formulated the approach that he began to take and wanted to take for laying out a way into the insight that he had had, that others could also travel uh, and be inducted into into his into this insight of awakening, freedom. And as was said the other night, he he realized that his 
his fellow ascetics that he practiced with could potentially understand what he had to say. And so when he came near to them, they were sitting and they saw him come near and they said, oh, here comes that slacker, Gotama. Because you remember he just accepted the milk rice from a beautiful young girl and, you know, they thought, oh, no, he's gone off the path and, and uh, he's gone off the, the, the tough path of asceticism. So let's just ignore him. So he came up towards his old um, fellow practitioners and but he, they were so amazed at his radiance and his bliss, they couldn't ignore him, so they made a seat and he sat down. And, and then he gave his first classical teaching, which, is, which really articulates the essence of the... Of, you could put, in a way, if you were going to put the essence of what the Buddha taught, you could articulate it in that first teaching that he gave. It's called the Dhamma Chaka Sutta. Dhamma, the Dharma Chaka, the wheel of the Dhamma, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. It's the first, what's called the first turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. The Buddha turned at Varanasi in the Deer Park. Um, and it was his teaching, of course, on the Four Noble Truths. And instead of beginning the teaching with the statement, there is enlightenment, or I am enlightened, I'm awakened, there's, I'm a world transcender, there's no one that... Uh, as the knowledge of, like I have, or whatever, he started with a, with a very different approach, and he started with the statement, there is this experience of dukkha. You know, there is this experience of dukkha, and dukkha needs to be understood. This is the first great noble truth. So that's something, of course. There's the experience of agitation, of suffering, of stress, of unsatisfactoriness. That's something we can all go, yes. <laughs> you know, say, well, I'm enlightened. It's like, well, great. Or, you know, well, there's enlightenment. Even that might be a speculative um, concept for us. But to, to begin the contemplative journey with this acknowledgement of our human state as one that where we experience and are prone to experience every day of our life, not just in metaphysical moment, but as an actual experience where we have this sense of dukkha. We can actually identify, we can locate it. Whether it's, whether it's the very, you know, very coarse experience of dukkha, which, were, which we chanted in the morning, the loss of loved ones, or the pain of death, or the pain of separation from the loved, or being together with the unloved. Um, or just psychodynamic emotional pain, physical pain. You know, so, you know, just, just the sense of heaviness or suffering. To the most subtle experience of dukkha, the lack of ease, the subtle sense of agitation, not quite being rest, rested, or not rested in terms of sleep, but somehow easeful. Um, or the, the, the different translations of dukkha, and the one I like, one translation of du meaning like dirty or unclean, and ka, space, like a, yeah. and it's often the analogy is given for the hub of a wheel, which is, is clogged up with dirt. Um, it, has, it has that analogy, but 
but the, the translation I quite like as do as being apart from or split away from and ka, akash, meaning the spacious or the perfect or the whole. So the state of dukkha that we experience, which is perhaps our most deepest suffering, although we don't always see it as that or understand it as that because we're often so busy reacting to it, is this fundamental pain of our separate, separative consciousness the feeling of somehow, in some way, being separated out, um, individuated out from the feeling of being whole, sort of oscillating and moving in our own sort of sphere. Um, so from the most, which gives us a sense of discontent, dis-ease, longing, searching, agitation. So this is perhaps the most subtle sense of the dukkha we can feel. And the the Buddha encouraged each of the Four Noble Truths. He went on to talk about this this Four Noble Truths, this first truth, um, in the way the whole premise of of Buddhist understanding and meditative practice is that one can liberate the heart from this experience of dukkha. It doesn't mean that one will never feel pain, you know, we never get a pain in the knee, we won't get old, we won't feel the loss of loved ones. It's not an immunity and insensitivity to pain, but the, the, the Buddha was talking about the possibility and the potential to really alleviate the, the suffering that gets generated from the kind of dukkha that the Buddha was talking about is generated from the ignorance of the mind, not really understanding the true nature of reality which brings us to the second noble truth. What generates this experience of stress and struggle and agitation? So the Buddha um, pointed to that when there's desire and aversion operating in the mind, then we're constantly, in every moment of our experience, we're generating, literally the, you know, the ignorance of the mind is generating the state of dukkha, of agitation, there's constantly a sense of, it's not enough, <laughs> or it's, I don't want it as it is. It's this, in, in reaction to, uh, to, to the actuality of what's present. Um, that's putting it in quite a simplistic way, but I, Ajahn Chah would basically say it's, it's fundamental, fundamentally what generates this experience of agitation is the mind wanting and not wanting how it is. You know, we constantly we, we want something else and that, that's not here and we don't want what is here. We want a peaceful state of mind when, there's, when it's not. Um, we want not to feel what we're feeling when we're feeling what we're feeling. Um, we don't want to, to be with the weather how the weather is or we don't want to be with... So in those moments when there's a... There's a the projection of, of how, of one of these, what's called these tanha, these thirsts, the thirst of craving, wanting desire, the thirst of, uh, of aversion, resistance, when they're operating the mind, then we're actually generating this dukkha. No one's doing it to us, it's being generated from the mind itself. And it's that dukkha that the Buddha says we can alleviate. It can be liberated from. You know, we'll still 
you know, we'll still feel the pains of life, but we're not going to be adding to them and, and making ourselves blindly suffer for the way it is. So the first noble truth, the Buddha laid, it leaves the template of the four noble truths. He drew, he drew from, he really, as in many of his teachings, he drew very much from the understanding and the language that was present in the culture and the time that he lived in. And the template of the Four Noble Truths was he, he laid out in a similar, in a similar um, model as one would understand um, from the using or drawing from the Ayurvedic model of healing, where one talks about first of all the symptom, um, and then the, and then the well the, the symptom or the disease which of course is dukkha, and then the cause, which is the various three forms of what's called desire, and then the, the cure, and the remedy. So he used these four, and that would have been very familiar at the time. And so in the first truth of suffering of dukkha, the, the recommendation is not to, uh, as, a, as a medicine, and each of these truths has a sort of a, a, a practice or, 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 or a, a, almost like a medicinal application to help alleviate them, to help illuminate them. Um, after all, the Buddha was called the great physician, the, the one that could heal. So the, this first truth, the recommendation was really to, to turn the mind to contemplate it. Usually when we feel the experience of suffering, we don't want to do that. We, we first of all distract ourselves from it, or we repress it, or we project it out. Um, blame, blame someone else, or project it inward, feel that it's my fault, there's something wrong with me that I'm feeling this. I'm a failure because I'm experiencing suffering. And we take it very personally. You know, it's really actually very nice to not. I think mean, it was one of the first things in the monastery that I really got eventually that it's, it's you know, it's not my fault. <laughs> Something I've done wrong. It's inherent. You know, maybe I'm perpetuating it, and maybe I, you know, um, was conditioned with other, you know, family and cultural suffering. But but in some ways, you know, this. But this this way of taking it in is also a misapprehension of the experience. So the so this this mindfulness that we've been practicing, the steady, the strength of mindfulness is is that that we can start to turn when we experience dukkha, we can start to turn to contemplate it. So the Buddha recommends in the first noble truth that we 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 turn towards the experience rather than run from it. Not, not as an end in itself, so we just grit our teeth and suffer. We turn to it so we can begin to have revealed to us, as we hold mindfulness and inquiry, what is generating this experience here and now. And then in this, and as we start to see more deeply into what's actually being generated, we can get a glimpse of these, these three forms of what's called tanha or thirsting, which are very seductive and very hard to really 
see because they're constantly dancing around in the mind and shaping us in different ways. It's very hard to contemplate desire and not become desire. <laughs> and in a meditation retreat where we have a lot of limitation, it's a very good vehicle for really contemplating this energy of that which pulls us out. Um, you know, to, we're, so, we're so identified with desire, we, we actually we actually just we actually are our desires if we don't contemplate them. We feel that's what we are. So to be able to really contemplate, to inquire, what is the nature of desires? It's a very interesting contemplation to really begin to reflect on it as an energy. And the first two forms are called, the first one's called kamatanha, which means it's this uh, desire for some kind of this movement of from dukkha, from that feeling of separateness, that, that quite profound feeling of the split consciousness, wants to find its wholeness somehow. We want to find completion and wholeness. This is such a primary movement for human beings. And we scan, this kamatanha is the scanning of the sensory realm, including thought, concept, perception, to find the right experience the right thing that will really complete us or just or alleviate that underlying feeling of discontent. And this is a, the first form of that, which is, and we can feel it on. I just, tonight we had the soup, which was delicious. Thank you for that. It's lovely. And I was, went up to our space up there and I could feel my mind going, <laughs> something, <laughs> something sweet, you know. <laughs> And it was just like this <laughs> hovering thing, you know, looking, oh, where's the biscuit tin? You know? I just thought, that is, that's, uh, I, was, I felt like Jack under the table. He's like, you know, like that kind of energy of just, I thought, you know, you could not go to the biscuit tin and it would be all right, you'd survive, you know. But it's so compelling, it's so seductive. It's like, if I don't have something sweet, I'm going to die almost. <laughs> it can get that severe and it's... And it's just like, mm, it's going to be okay. You'll make it to the next morning. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's very powerful, this kamatanha, to, 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 to find completion of the senses, what's called bhavatanha, which is the energy, which is, you know, we feel ourselves a lot to be. Bhava means to become something. We don't feel we're enough. It's, it's not... You know, we're not complete somehow, so we're always being pulled out into having to become something more, you know, to, to, to complete ourselves, to be more successful, to be more knowledgeable, to be more wise, to, to whatever it is. And, and until we awaken and illuminate that energy, we keep just being pulled along by the nose, by it, um, to become whatever we feel we need to become. And none of, it's not a, not a judgment value. These energies can, can be transmuted and guided by wisdom, but when they're unconscious and they're not illuminated and not understood, they just drive us. And actually, ironically, they don't really resolve the fundamental feeling of dukkha. They just generate and create more. Uh, they, they make 
the pain deeper when, when they're not guided properly. And then the last form, the last of the three great tanhas, um, thirsts, is when we've had enough, when we've experienced enough, when we've tasted enough, when we've thought enough, when we've done enough, it's the feeling of really wanting to just go into obliteration, to, to really just not exist, to not feel, to not be here. So the vipavatanha, which means just the desire to sort of, literally actually means not to exist, <laughs> which can, can be from the most profound feeling of just wanting to, to kill ourselves, which, which I, can, I have felt in my life, you know, just like, I just like to end it all somehow. Many beings feel that, to, to just this subtle sense of just not resisting life, just not wanting to, to you know, um, just, just feeling it's too difficult. Kirisara and I used to have a mantra, and we, I think we might be getting a bit better, and perhaps we progressing a little bit, but when we'd wake up at, in the morning, you'd go, it's too difficult. <laughs> it's not a great mantra, but that kind of can keep, just go, you know, it's too difficult. It's too difficult to get up and face the world. And that's, that's that feeling, you know. It took me a long, I was so much that feeling, it took me a long time to actually realize it wasn't me. It was, it was this energy of Wipuwadano, and to be able to have moments of just seeing it, contemplating it. So, to, so in the meditation, we mindfulness it steadies on the breath, and then we begin to have the opportunity to illuminate these powerful energies with, with the mindfulness, with the discernment, with the inquiry, with the awareness, for the sake of really understanding them. When I, you know, as a young nun, Living in the monastery from the age of 23 to 36, that's the time of one's life when there is a lot of desire energy going, either to become something or lust or sexual desire or just desire for experiences. And so I had a lot of opportunity to really not be able to follow those desires but to have to contemplate them. So it's quite fierce. It's, it's a very fierce uh, practice. And I remember once, quite early on, um, I was really struggling with, you know, just feeling kind of pinned in into the form and into the practice and into the schedule. And one of the, the um, jobs we had to do was when we first started developing that first monastery in England, Chithurst Monastery, it was a mess. It had, you know, it was like a, basically it was a, like a building site. And we just had to clean out stuff and burn tons and tons and tons of stuff, old bits of wood. And the, the, the wood had gotten this, um, some kind of disease and we had to sort of, had to be replaced and had to burn it. So I remember just standing one, one day, I had the duty of doing the fire and I was burning these logs and bits of wood and junk. And I, I started to have the feeling that, that 
the lust I was feeling and the desire and, the, and, the, and this longing and this wantingness, sort of wanting for some experience or someone to fulfill me was a bit like this burning fire and however much I put into that fire it would never be consumed, it would just rage even more. I had the feeling of like the endless bodies <laughs> that just get, just the, the, the energy of desire eats through just eats through, just and you put more and more and more and thinking that oh, if I put enough in it will consume and it will it will it will go out. And so you know the Buddha talked about sometimes this feeling of this the, the fire, the burning. Um, and then the third noble truth, you know, is you know, this this endlessness of that, the endlessness of that. And feeling like if we feed our desires more and more and more, they'll they'll somehow finish. You know, that's the seduction of them. They they never finish. They just get bigger <laughs> and more. And they they just keep pointing to the next thing. Okay, we get this one done, and then it's the next thing. It's the next thing. And the next experience was when Ajahn Chah came to England, and he came to the community I was living in, and really struck me. We said to him, it was his first visit, and he was sitting there, and we offered him the meal, and we were sitting all in front of him, and we are thinking, God, we better entertain him. He's like, he's come from the East, he's never been to the West before. So he said, Ajahn Chah, would you like to go to the seaside? <laughs> so he was taking him down to Leon Solent or some marvelous place like that. <laughs> so would you like to go to the seaside? And he goes, I've already seen, I've already seen the sea. It's like, why do I need to go anywhere? You know, and it was just like, oh, you know, just this sense of someone that had put it down. Someone that had just put down that endless sense of, I need more, I need more, I need more. And he was just happy there, cleaning his false teeth, put them back in, eating his meal, smiling at everyone. He didn't need to go anywhere and be entertained. That was kind of like, for me, that was almost one of the most amazing things about him. But, but this, when the Buddha talked about the fire going, the Nibbana, the third noble truth, the analogy is of the fire going out. So uh, the sense of the fire that's gone out. So the, the practice, the practice of the first noble truth is to, when there is agitation, when there is dukkha, contemplate it. The second noble truth. The remedy is to just keep discerning. Yes, what's happening? What's generating it? And then the Buddha says, said in the second noble truth that this energy of desire, of, of kamatana, vipuratana, bhavatana needs to be let go of needs to be just let be, not to be keep fuel, fueling it, fueling it, fueling it. And when we have moments of, you know, going back to that teaching we've been contemplating, moments of just being able to let go or let things be, not to have to follow that, slavishly follow, then we can have moments of tasting this third noble truth, which is called niroda, or cessation, the mind's not grasping, then the mind doesn't grasp. It can taste its own fullness. The heart doesn't grasp after anything that it feels is needed in this moment. It reverts to its own unified state. 
its own immovable suchness, can taste its own peacefulness, its own completion. And the taste of this nibbana, the unbinding, as Tanisro translated, the fire unbound, the fire is released from being bound to the object, goes back to its own element and dissolves, it becomes that mysterious dissolving. You can't find an edge, you can't find a location. Just the quality of presence that is. So the Buddha called this third noble truth as using a term from the day, the realization of Nibbana or Niroda. Niroda literally means the mind without walls, leading to the taste of Nibbana, meaning that which is cool. It was a term that meant just like cooling the pot when you've cooked it, taking it off and letting it cool. So it's being ever so cool. And this this third noble truth, the, the remedy or the practice is the first noble truth is suffering needs to be understood. The second noble truth, desire needs to be let go of or let be. To taste the third noble truth, the peace, the, un, the mind, the heart's not grasping, the third noble truth needs to be realized. Not attained, not got, not, but just turned to and understood, realized, the realization of the unfettered heart, the unbound uh, heart. And then the fourth noble truth um, is the practice, the, the path, again, that needs to be developed. The, the practice, the remedy for the fourth noble truth is the way, the way leading back to this subtle realization that the Buddha then spent his whole life trying to articulate in the realization that ultimately transcends language, can never capture it. But this this path that we're practicing now, been practicing today, in essence at its heart the path is the path of mindfulness, path of presence, path of attentiveness, the path of discernment the path of, of actualizing the natural intelligence of the heart when it's mindful to discern, to inquire, to reflect, to contemplate. So the Buddha said that you and I, through not understanding these four truths, have wandered endlessly through the realms of samsara, endlessly seeking for whatever we seek. And uh, so implied in that is as we start to deepen and understand these ennobling truths, truths that ennoble us as human beings, then we come to really bring that seeking to resolution. We know where to look, how to look, 
how to resolve this fundamental experience of, of suffering. So as we uh, finish our practice today, may we contemplate that if there has been struggle or suffering or dukkha, that it's not blind, it's not in vain, it's not, uh, one doesn't have to just suffer unconsciously, but that we can, this is, we can use any of the experience of struggle or suffering to sharpen and hone our wisdom, our compassion, to 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 realize it's you know it's a very precious vehicle. It's, the suffering of our life is a precious vehicle. It's not something wrong. It's not a mistake. It's not something bad about us. It's the that which ultimately pokes us, <laughs> pushes us into to our own awakening our own peace, to our own fulfillment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.